Welcome to the Live Longer World podcast where we have conversations with scientists, entrepreneurs, investors and other advocates transforming the field of aging and longevity science. We bring you information on how you can be disease free, reverse aging and maximize longevity now and in the future. I am Aastha Jain, the host of the Live Longer World podcast. Besides this podcast, I also create other content on longevity science. I write a newsletter and have a YouTube where I distill the basics of longevity science and discuss how to maximize health span and incorporate longevity practices into your lifestyle. You can find these resources on my website. Head over to livelongerworld.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at LiveLongerWorld, Instagram at LongevityFuture, and support my work through Patreon, which is simply patreon.com forward slash LiveLongerWorld. All these links and resources are also included in the show notes. With that, let's get started with today's episode. My guest today is Reason, the founder and CEO of Repair Biotechnologies. Repair Biotechnologies is a biotech company focused on developing therapies that treat medical conditions arising due to accumulation of excessive cholesterol. They have developed a unique cholesterol degrading platform to reverse the damage that leads to heart disease and atherosclerosis. More than 5 million people die every year due to atherosclerosis and Repair Biotechnologies is trying to solve this problem. Reason is perhaps most well known for his popular blog Fight Aging where he distills the latest research in aging and longevity science. For anyone looking to stay informed on aging research, I highly highly recommend you checking it out. It's one of the best resources out there. In today's conversation we discuss how to think of aging simply the differences between slowing and reversing aging NAD+ boosters and their effectiveness reversing aging using senolytics how his company is working on a gene therapy to reverse atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease and how one can get involved in the aging space and much more Just a quick note. We discuss a fair bit on cellular senescence and senolytic therapies. For those unfamiliar with the concept, cellular senescence is a process in which cells lose their ability to divide but refuse to die. When these senescent cells don't get cleared away, they release harmful substances and damage the cells around them too. It is well known that senescent cells accumulate with age contributing to inflammation and aging itself. Senolytics is a class of drugs that can selectively clear away these senescent cells and they have shown promise in delaying and preventing age-related diseases. Now with that, let's dive right into the conversation with Reason. So hi Reason and thank you so much for uh being on the Live Longer World show. I really appreciate your time. 
Uh, always happy to be around. Um, it's good to talk. Uh -huh. So I, as I was saying before, I, I do love your blog and I, I hope a lot more people read it, Fight Aging. It really does a great job in advocacy and talking about aging. And I think the point, uh, point I'd like to start with is just talking about aging very simply to the general public. You do a beautiful job in explaining aging as damage accumulation and something that's increasing your risk of death with the years to come. I'd love it if you could elaborate on that point and just explain aging to someone who's probably never thought about it in terms of aging as a disease. So sure, I think like the, the rusting car is a good way to think about it. If you leave a car out in the field for long enough, it will rust and it will fall apart. Um, and because a car is kind of complicated um, in its structure, it, it, as it rusts, it could fall apart in all sorts of different ways. Well, will the roof cave in first? Will the door fall off? Um, you know, any one of those things stops it being a viable car to drive around in. But it's very unclear as to which of those things will happen first. Rust is very, very simple. It's just a very simple little chemical process. But if you start rusting a complicated piece of metal, it will fall apart in complicated ways. Um, and aging, if you want to think of it very, very simply, it's just a set of rusts. Um, we, we rust, in, in, if you want to take the analogy, we accumulate sort of damage and dysfunction um, as a result of very simple processes that, that go wrong and create problems that accumulate over time. Uh, and aging is really only complicated because we are complicated. If you create a simple form of damage in a complicated thing, like a person, then the person will fall apart in all sorts of weird and strange ways. And everyone falls apart a little bit the same, but a little bit differently. Um, different things happen earlier. Some people get cardiovascular disease. Some people get cancer. Some people get neurodegenerative disease. And that's what kills them first. But it's all the result of the same underlying simple processes that are causing damage. Um, and we, we evolved this way um, simply because evolution really wants you to succeed early in life. The, the people, the, the organisms that win the evolutionary battle for who gets to survive are the ones that reproduce the earliest they could um, within the constraints of your, your environment. And the, um, therefore, evolution likes to front load. You, you get systems that are made for short-term use, like your immune system. Um, your immune system works great out of the gate. Your adaptive immune system, the one that remembers problems it encounters, but it, it keeps having to assign space um, to its memory, and eventually it'll run out. Um, and that's that's kind of a problem. It was it never evolved to carry around for the long term um, because evolution only really cares about did you successfully have offspring before you were thirty, which is roughly what your grandparents care about too. But um, you know it's it's that's the way it goes. So yes, um, aging is just damage, and it's very simple in comparison to what the damage does, which is very complicated. So when you look at the, uh, the research community struggling to try to explain little details about aging, how it actually works all the way along, the reason that they're struggling is because we still don't fully understand human cellular metabolism. 
in all of its details. So it's rather hard to explain what happens in a complex system if you don't actually understand the system fully. Uh, and researchers write grants for things they can write papers on. So they're very interested in explaining aging, but we don't really need to explain aging. We, we actually have a pretty good understanding of, um, of what these fundamental forms of damage are, a good enough understanding to go out and try to fix them. And frankly, the best way to figure out, you know, what does aging do while it moves forward in this incredibly complicated system is to take, take an animal where it has something hasn't been fixed and take an animal where something has been repaired or fixed and see what the differences are. And we do that for things like senescent cell clearance, um, where senescent cells accumulate with age and they spit out all sorts of gunk and, and, and inflammatory signals and mess up your body actively. And animals in which you get rid of senescent cells um, have quite profound rejuvenation. Um, they, a, lot of their, a lot of their bodily systems are given leave to go back and try and get themselves back to a, a, a normal operating status. And that can be, that can be really quite impressive. Uh, let's, for example, take cardiac hypertrophy. Um, when you get old, your heart um, starts to expand, your heart muscle expands and weakens at the same time, and it contributes to heart failure. And that's a pretty, a pretty horrible thing. And you wouldn't think that that would actually reverse. Um, mm -hmm. But if you go clear senescent cells in rats, uh, yes, it does. It, it actually, the hypertrophy of the heart actually starts to reverse and the heart goes back to the way it should be uh, and pumps more strongly. So there's tremendous opportunity here just by looking at comparatively simple forms of damage in the body and focusing on that and, and leaving the question of, okay, great, but how does this damage really actually then cause all sorts of problems in your body over time? Leave that as a secondary question. Go fix the fix the damage first. It, it will make it so much easier to figure out, you know, if you really want to know at that point what um, what happens afterwards. But equally, you know, tuberculosis is pretty much a solved problem. Does anybody out there really, really care about how tuberculosis progresses exactly in the body beyond what we already know? Ditto for smallpox. Do we, do we really want to be out there researching exactly how smallpox, you know, causes harm and dysfunction? No, nobody cares because smallpox is cured and done with. Um, mm -hmm. and the same will be true of tuberculosis one day. Uh, the focus needs to be on fixing the causes. Yeah, I think those are really great points. I think something you mentioned in the beginning was, you know, rust is, it seems pretty simple on the car and the outside, but there are these complex uh, chemical reactions that are happening, which could be similar to, you know, just wrinkles start showing up or your knees start hurting, but then there's all this damage that's actually accumulating inside your body with age, similar to how the immune system, I mean, we see how COVID impacts older people a lot more than younger people. And that's probably also something to do with immunity and just evolution, as you mentioned. But uh, I think a couple of things you mentioned at the end were senescent cells and rejuvenation, uh, for example. And you lay out the distinction really well between slowing aging versus actually reversing aging and rejuvenation therapies. And honestly, I hadn't thought about that distinction before that, uh, before you uh, wrote about it. And obviously, like, tiny uh, lifestyle changes, like, I mean, just eating better, caloric restriction, exercise, all fall in the category of slowing aging. Uh, but then there are also these um, NAD 
precursors or sirtuins, for example, and you put that in the category of slowing aging too. And I would, I would love it if you could, one, explain the distinction between what slowing aging versus reversing aging actually is. And also, do you think um, some of these precursors or supplements uh, are, are the hype around it is unwarranted in some ways? Well, hype is almost always unwarranted in the <laughs> industry. Uh, sad to say, then they're in the business of selling lies and hope mostly. So, I mean, slowing aging and reversing aging um, sort of blur into one another in the middle. If you have a way to reverse aging just a little bit mm -hmm. uh, and you do it repeatedly, then really that's that's just slowing aging. But equally, uh, and by reversing aging, I specifically mean repair some damage. So if you can okay. go repair just a little bit of damage, um, mm -hmm. not enough to like get back to where you were, but just enough to slow the accumulation down, that, that's roughly slowing aging. So bad, bad rejuvenation therapies will slow aging. Um, so equally, on the other hand, if you have a way to make, to compensate, not repair the damage, but to somehow compensate for it, um, by forcing cells to behave as if the damage didn't exist or by telling cells to just act better um, and be more useful um, despite damage, that will generally slow aging. Um, but, you know, compensation is, is hard to do for the long term and it, it falls off in effectiveness very rapidly. Things like, um, things like exercise and calorie restriction, they're a very little bit of bad rejuvenation are mixed in with a bunch of compensation. They're a little bit of both. Um, they slow aging because, you know, they're, they're preventing some cells from becoming senescent. They're um, making you a little more resilient to some forms of damage. They're slowing the accumulation of some other forms of damage. But um, I, I don't think anybody should be jumping up and down and saying exercise is rejuvenation. Even if you take like, if you take a sedentary 60 year old and you put them on a treadmill, uh, mm -hmm for a couple of months, they start looking a lot better. Okay. That, I don't think we can sit down and call that, call that um, rejuvenation. That's, that's, just, that's just ending neglect. Um, so, so slowing aging really, I think most of what I would refer to slowing aging is where you're trying to do things where you improve cellular metabolism without necessarily um, attacking the damage that is causing cellular metabolism to become dysfunctional. So thing you, you picked up the example of NAD plus precursors. Um, so NAD plus is an essential molecule in um, the operation of the mitochondria in your cells to provide power to your cells. Mitochondria package up an energy store molecule called ATP and your cell needs ATP to do anything. Mm -hmm. So with age, your mitochondria become worse at producing ATP for a whole range of different reasons. And one of those reasons um, at the later stage is that you run out of NAD+, you get less of it. And this is because of a whole bunch of different things that lead to the situation in which some production and some recycling and um, some, some other chemical reactions are not running as well as they should. But that's all way downstream of the causes of aging. It's, it's a knock-on effect of a knock-on effect of a knock-on effect. But you can interfere with that by delivering some of the, some of the um, necessary chemicals that are not being produced in large enough numbers in the aged body and try to just shortcut 
the, the later stages of this problem just for NAD+. Of course, that doesn't change any of the other myriad things that have gone wrong with your mitochondria. It just changes the NAD+, problem. But that has a large enough effect um, in mice, at least, to be vaguely interesting. In humans, mm, it's sort of an open question as to is this, is this actually any better than exercise? There's actually a very long history of um, upregulating NAD+, going back 100 years or so, um, though they didn't know they were upregulating NAD+, until very recently. This is all high-dose um, high niacin. Is, right. is a very long it's very long tried um and there's, there's sort of it's very mixed does it do anything the there's very few good clinical trials um that show any sort of reliable benefits so you can absolutely take a human and upregulate nad plus in their mitochondria and get the chemical results that say yep i increased nad plus by 100 percent which by the way you can do by going on an exercise program uh -huh. uh, more easily uh so you know that you get the same problem with this sort of exercise and um and let's say any sort of calorie restriction mimetic drug where they say you're you're forcing the nutrient sensing mechanisms to think that there's less to think that there's less food going on so the cells suddenly get much more uptight about recycling and and being careful and um ramping back their protein production and generally tidying up the house so you get an improvement, but again, you know, you could go out and exercise and you get much the same thing or eat less and you get much the same thing, except more comprehensively because the drugs only touch a little part of the, um, of the system. So this what if of... you are combining the two though? What if you're exercising and taking these supplements? Is that do you see better? You get, some overlapping, you get some overlapping benefit, but equally it's still not as good as if you, as if you just ate less and exercised more. I so, I mean, there's an awful lot of effort going into selling drugs to people who don't really want to go out and exercise, right. but this isn't going to change the shape of a human lifespan. We know what calorie restriction does in humans. We know what exercise mm -hmm. does in humans. You can't exercise your way reliably to living to 90 years of age. You know, the, the, the fittest people, half of them are dead by the time you get to 90 um, yeah. in the present environment of what a 90-year-old has lived through. So it's it's not the way to go. These things are not interesting. Upregulating stress responses like calorie restriction mimetics, improving mitophagy and aging cells, the way it's being done right now, it's not it's not a good enough approach. It's not a big enough benefit to be interesting. If you can't do much, much, much better than exercise, then why are you even bothering with this line of development? That's that's my take on these things. We need we need much better approaches, and to do that, you have to have things like clearing senescent cells or breaking crosslinks or um, all the other approaches that are um, that are sort of under development in early stages in the biotech community. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, so let's discuss those and then the rejuvenation therapies and clearing senescent cells. Um, I guess I, I want to one touch upon like funding for those and narratives for those, but maybe before that, because senescent cells seems to be quite promising already. Uh, just the area of analytics. Uh, what is what is the latest development in that field? Uh, what is the progress in terms of clinical trials or drugs, or can people start using it? What what is happening there? So senescent cell. So senolytics uh, is the general name. For, for drugs that kill senescent cells. It's a subdivision of the broader development of therapies that we'll call senotherapeutics. 
um, which also covers um, efforts to prevent cells from becoming senescent and efforts to make senescent cells less horrible if they are going to be senescent. Um, I think that um, the prevention has some has some promise uh, in the sense that mTOR inhibitors do seem to prevent cells become senescent in 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 enough of an it, to a big enough degree to perhaps be interesting and competitive if it if it works out. Um, the, there's not you know there isn't the weight of evidence yet to say that this is this is actually real. But if you could find other things that 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 can let's say halve the number of senescent cells in your body if you take it over over six months just by affecting the the turnover senescent cell accumulation isn't actually by the look of it by the way um a matter of getting these senescent cells and they just sit there forever mm -hmm. um it appears to be a turnover problem you you generate more of them because your body is more damaged and cells are more unhappy than you right. do in youth and you get rid of them less effectively because your immune system is becoming dysfunctional um so if you could affect the turnover on either side maybe you're good but there isn't much there is the work on destroying them is much more advanced than the work on preventing cells from becoming senescent and there's this, this always this um this fear that if you're preventing cells from becoming senescent you're actually sometimes going to increase the risk of cancer because some of those cells should have become senescent because they were damaged senescence mm -hmm. is an anti-cancer mechanism at root uh, one that goes out of control and becomes wild when you get too old. So senolytics as an industry, um, which is what I was originally going to say before I sidebarked myself there, senolytics as an industry is um, very, very unusual and very interesting because the first drug combination that was developed in animals is actually really, really good. Um, and nobody's yet done much better than that uh, where they've published data. So you have an industry where a, a drug, disatinib, combined with a supplement, quercetin, is actually as good as whatever they're rolling out of the, um, the drug development pipeline. So it should be interesting to see how that pans out, because the first thing that's going to happen as soon as the Mayo Clinic finishes up their, their disatinib trials in a way that's compelling, you're going to see enormous off-label use everywhere. And in fact, you're already seeing um, significant off-label use of disatinib and quercetin and um, a community of people growing who are using these drugs and claiming good effects from them in terms of, you know, addressing their age-related concerns. So that's going to be a real problem for all these people who want to charge you, you know, $10,000 a year for whatever senolytic drug they're putting out. There's a tremendous diversity of those drugs being developed. There's gene therapies, there's immunotherapies, there's various senolytics um, have been, have been, are under development. Um, the one that will win is prodrugs, I think, because uh, prodrugs have the advantage of, what, what they do is they take a chemotherapeutics such as Navidoclax or Dasatinib that is, is disatinib's good because it's um, a pretty mild chemotherapeutic and a very good senolytic, and you don't have to take it very often. Navidoclax, you have to take a lot more of, and it's a really ugly drug because it has very ugly side effects. But if you, if you join it onto a compound that only gets removed in senescent cells, you get a harmless compound that does nothing to most of the cells of your body, and you mm -hmm. can dose it up at large, large levels so that it really kills a lot of senescent cells. And it's cheap. Um, so I think they'll win. 
um, in terms of effectiveness, but will they be able to displace disatinib and quercetin by, because disatinib and quercetin is pretty good um, for, a first, for a first outing, and it's an existing drug. It's manufactured in large amounts. It's already FDA approved, so anybody could use it off-label, and people are. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty fascinating industry. Are there, are there any known side effects at all? And also, what age do you think people can start taking it? Like if I'm in my 20s, should I be taking these? That's a really interesting question. Um, people don't know. So there's, there's a lot of conflicting evidence that suggests that maybe we should be clearing senescent cells younger in life. Um, but equally, it seems more likely that senescent cells only become important once you get to the age at which your cancer risk is high. Um, that, that's an unresolved question. What is needed is a good set of data showing what is the senescent cell burden in all the tissues of the human body um, at a given age until we can start saying, should you actually go in and take senescent cells? I mean, in, in fact, in general, people don't really know um, which, are the, which of the causes of aging are important um, when you go from, let's say, 20 to 40. Um, mm. We have no idea why what are these things that happen to your skin and your brain and your gut microbiome why are they happening in in the 20 to 20 to 40 range and you know who knows um the only way to find out really is to start repairing things and see what happens but in in the balance of should i take a chemotherapeutic every now and again um if you're if you're in your 20s that probably doesn't meet the risk reward benefit and then right. you know it, it adjusts as you get older. All right. Um, but what about uh, fasting, actually, longer-term fast? Does that also clear away senescent cells, and, or is that not as good as uh, taking some of these off-label it drugs? Falls under, it falls under prevention. I mean, if you can do okay. something over six months that reduces your senescent cell burden by half, <clears throat> then, then you know, taking senolytics does about the same thing in yeah. a few days yeah um and it's not at all clear obviously fasting does what fasting does you can't fast to reverse your cardiac hypertrophy you can't fast your way out of having atherosclerosis at some point these tools fail um they're largely preventative but senolytics clearly actually does quite dramatically reverse um, conditions in later life, at least in mice, and we will see whether it does that in humans. The Mayo Clinic is starting a trial for Alzheimer's disease because senescent supporting cells in the brain are, judging from the animal models, very important um, in producing neuroinflammation and, um, and neurodegeneration. And if you remove them in the animal models, things get a lot better. Uh, so, so let's say five years from now at the outside, we'll probably know whether or not the best Alzheimer's drug of the next 15 years is going to be disatinib. Uh -huh. It's quite possible. Interesting. I'm, I'm very curious to yeah see what happens in that field then. Um, shifting gears to your company a bit. So before you started with Pair Biotechnologies, you were, uh, I believe, angel investing in a lot of uh, longevity aging startups and uh, also writing your blog, obviously, and then you decided to start this company. I believe the focus at the beginning was on the thymus and repairing the immune system. And uh, it seems like now you've shifted gears a little bit to uh, cholesterol degrading. Um, I'm curious as to 
why you shifted focus if that's the case and like what you learned about the thymus and immune system and and then later we can go into the work you're doing right now ah it's the tyranny of funding is the answer uh, when you start a company <laughs> if you if you have multiple projects eventually you're only going to be doing one of them and it's whichever one of them does better the fastest than the other yeah. one you you end up reinforcing success investors really like you to focus down so eventually the um the the after a year or two the um the cholesterol degrading approach just was producing amazing data in comparison to our other work so we just had kept shifting resources to that one and eventually that's that's where it started that's where it came to i think okay. that uh attempting to prevent the quarter of humanity that dies from atherosclerosis is is a big enough a big enough job for now for this though i would certainly like to get back to um immune aging which um is a very important topic and it's it's broadly very uh influential on near every aspect of the operation of your body as you age the immune system doesn't just defend against pathogens it's also responsible for killing cancerous cells um and tissue maintenance in general is intimately connected with the function of the immune system so you know if you want to if you want to not be frail and live longer having an immune system that functions in a useful fashion for as long as possible is is very important and at the point at which you're 50 that stops happening if you're if you're 50 you're coasting on fumes at this point because your thymus has has involuted and you're not really generating a large supply of um of t cells anymore for your adaptive immune system so that you get you have about you know a 10 20 year lifespan on those existing cells as they just replicate to keep themselves going but they become increasingly sort of cranky and misconfigured and broken in the absence of sufficient reinforcements so if you could just regenerate the thymus um and replenish all of those cells it's it's a very important component of immune aging there are others of course you have to fix the um the bone marrow cells that are responsible for generating all immune cells and you kind of have to clear out the cells that have become broken and problematic as well but these these are all incrementally you should get benefits from doing doing each of these things um it's a very important project and i'd like to see i'd like to see more work and conducted in this direction ultimately sometimes that means you have to do it yourself so if someone is working in this area of the immune system oh, yeah. aging um can you talk about what you learned from early experiments there, like just your learnings and findings there, if it could be helpful or- uh, On which side, the immune the immune side? We can, it's easier to talk side. about the, I'm sorry? Uh, sorry, yes, on the immune side. So I think um, what we learned is that the thymus is a very hard target. Um, it's tough to work with. Uh, and it's very hard to find a delivery system that's going to get your therapeutic to the thymus um without you know having too much of it going elsewhere um i believe that there there are certainly ways around that and that is that is the way i look at that there are other people working on um on approaches to thymic regeneration um there's uh, intervene immune who use a growth hormone based approach which of course has its own downsides though it appears modestly to work given their initial data there's also um, a number of other groups that are taking a more cell regenerative medicine approach um, based on producing tissues that they can implant. Um, and there's, there's a variety of other things at very early stages where people are trying to find small molecules that selectively 
selectively interfere in the thymic re thymic regulation of growth without interfering elsewhere. But I think that's that's probably a bit of a tall order um, because the thymus is it does share vital mechanisms with some other parts of the body. So I think it's it's going to be challenging to produce a small molecule drug that can provoke thymus growth without actually also doing bad things somewhere else. I see. Okay, that's helpful. Um, so atherosclerosis, a new project, cholesterol degrading. Uh, can you talk a bit more about that and what you're trying to do there? And it sure. seems like you also have promising results in mice so far, so would be would be great to hear that. So atherosclerosis is primarily a condition in which the macrophage cells in your body become dysfunctional. These macrophage cells are innate immune cells. They just come straight out of your bone marrow and other locations. And they're, they're, they usually hang out in the spleen um, as monocytes and then go into your bloodstream to like go out and find problems. And uh, when they find an area of your blood vessel wall that's, that's inflamed or damaged, they dive in there, become macrophages and start to repair it. Um, and the major issue in the body with, with, in this context is cholesterol. Um, cholesterol is needed everywhere in your body. It, the cells use it to make up their membranes. Um, cholesterol is also not really destroyed locally. Cells have to go fetch cholesterol by picking it up from the environment. And when they have too much of it, they pass it back into the environment. Um, they don't really have the option to manufacture it or, or get rid of it locally. It's expensive. So it's made for the first approximation, it's made in the liver, and then it gets put into the bloodstream and carried around on LDL particles and cells ingest these LDL particles as needed. And if they have too much cholesterol, they give it back to HDL particles that take it back to the bloodstream and send it back to the liver. And this huge Rube Goldberg system evolved probably because cholesterol is so abundant in the body that you, you can't evolve a way to just break it down um, without killing cells because cells need cholesterol for their membranes. Um, so what happens is you get like too much cholesterol or, or oxidized cholesterol in the blood vessel walls and the, that annoys the blood vessel wall cells and they call for help. You get macrophages coming in and they try to clean it up. And this works great when you're young. Um, you don't get atherosclerosis as a young person. But uh, later in life, you get these areas where um, it runs out of control. The macrophages come in, they try to clean it up, they get overwhelmed and die. Uh, and they contribute to this growing mass of fat in your blood vessel wall that just keeps adding more and more fat. And it's constantly mm -hmm. calling for more macrophages to come in and try to clean it up. And they come in and they try to clean it up and they fail and they die. And this just continues as a feedback loop. So everybody so far in the research and development community has settled on, well, let's try to lower the amount of cholesterol in the bloodstream as a way to do this. And every single drug so far deployed does this in one way or another but if you have an established area of plug this sort of fatty macrophage graveyard full of gunk that's just going to kill more macrophages lowering bloodstream cholesterol really doesn't help that much it just slows things down a little bit uh, you get about a 20 percent reduction of mortality at best uh, and in this environment where everybody and their dog is taking statins to lower their blood cholesterol, it still kills 25% of everybody. Um, 
So we need to do better than that. And the doing better than that is let's go get rid of the cholesterol that's in the plaque itself. That is the problem. And the way you do that really is by making the macrophages resistant to that environment in some way, shape or form. Um, and our approach is to genetically engineer the macrophages to give them the ability to break down cholesterol locally into a safe byproduct. Um, so that, that enables the macrophages to, in principle, just continue to operate as they would in youth. And it doesn't matter how much plaque you have, given enough macrophages, they will, they will break it down and get rid of it and gradually return the blood vessels to normal. So, uh, you know, any approach that made macrophages completely invulnerable to their environment would work. Um, and obviously that, that getting that, getting that approach is kind of troubling. You can, there's some things you can do that seem to work decently well in mice. Um, but we think our approach is sufficiently comprehensive and direct that we don't have to worry about any of the fiddly problems about differences between mice and humans or, um, or problems with metabolism that occur in some of those other approaches. And as you mentioned, uh, it works really, our approach works really well in mice. We, we delivered an AAV gene therapy to mice and uh, with a pretty high dose. And it was perfectly safe, very well tolerated and halved the amount of lipids in, in unstable plaque in these mice. And if you can get rid of um, the cholesterol that's making soft, unstable plaque, um, soft and unstable, then, you know, if you get rid of half of that, then you've roughly halved the mortality risk um, due to those plaques rupturing and then causing a stroke or a heart attack. And that's that's what we do in a nutshell. And we're um, hard at work um, with our with our our huge um, vivarium full of hundreds of overweight atherosclerotic mice um, awaiting injections of uh, various approaches to therapy. So it is possible to break down this uh, cholesterol and the plaque itself into these local waste products. You're saying then, yeah, is that something that's that like? Is that something that happens um, when we're younger on its own no. in our body? No. What happens okay. when we're younger is that the macrophages don't get overwhelmed to the same degree. And what they do is they ingest the, uh, the contents of the plaque and then hand it off to HDL particles, which go back into the bloodstream and head to the liver where it's excreted. Um, the problem occurs when that process breaks down because the macrophages become dysfunctional because of oxidized um, cholesterol or oxidized LDL particles that make them pathological. Uh, systemic inflammation is also a bad thing because it makes macro it distracts macrophages and makes them um, it makes them adopt their their inflammatory um, anti-pathogen. Uh, mode of operation and that just that stops them doing the necessary work of ingesting cholesterol and getting getting it handed off so it, it's a complicated little little loop of cholesterol going around the body and the macrophages are the weak point that stop working properly so we do two things we're, by giving them this ability to break down cholesterol firstly we prevent them from getting overwhelmed mm -hmm. because they can just get rid of the excess that makes them unhappy um, and secondly, because they're not overwhelmed, they're doing their job. So in addition to breaking down more cholesterol, getting more cholesterol out of the plaque, they also continue to hand off cholesterol to HDL particles to get sent back to the, um, sent back to the liver. So they become hyper-efficient of doing this, doing this very necessary job. 
I see. I see. Okay. Wow. That sounds very promising. Um, the one thing you mentioned that's working in mice and then uh, you also don't have the same issues uh, as some of the other studies do in terms of uh, extrapolating from mice studies to human studies. I'm sure you're going to obviously do human clinical trials as well. But I am, um, I am actually very curious about that, that what is, I mean, what do you think about like when a lot of people extrapolate from my studies to human studies? Like, how do you think about when it's safe to do so, when it's not? Um, and uh, as you mentioned, like some of your well, studies the, don't I mean, have the that devil, The devil is in the details here. Um, sometimes it is, usually it's not. Um, senescent cell clearance is an example of, you know, where it is pretty safe to extrapolate based upon what we know in that these cells are, are pretty terrible. And the only question is, you know, how terrible versus all the other things that are going on, are they in mice versus people? There's no question that you're going to get benefits. Mm -hmm. um, in the case of atherosclerosis, I can talk in a little more detail as to why, um, why, you know, some things are very confusing about the reason why past therapies haven't worked. So this, this reverse cholesterol transport business where your, your macrophages are digging cholesterol out of the blood vessel walls and giving it to HDL particles, it, it's a multi-step process. There's, there's the part where the macrophage ingests the cholesterol through surface receptors. There's the part where it hands it off via other surface receptors and transporters to, um, to, the, uh, to the HDL particles. And then there's the HDL particles themselves and their take up in the liver. So this system can be improved. Um, you can add more HDL particles. You can upregulate the genes that are involved in, in the protein that produce the proteins that hand particles off or ingest um, cholesterol. And if you do any of this, it works really well in mice. Um, you can upregulate any part of reverse cholesterol transport in mice, and you get less you, and you get reversal of atherosclerotic lesions. Some and some of the studies have been produced results that are as good as our results just by improving reverse cholesterol transport in mice through any one of these, these mechanisms. Um, I think there've been three or four trials in humans now uh, where they attempted to bring one of these mechanisms into a human study and they all failed. So there's something we really don't understand about what the long poles are or what the rate limiting steps are in reverse mm -hmm. cholesterol transport in humans versus mice and something about that means that anybody who tries to bring a therapy based on improving reverse cholesterol transport is, is you know, you're, you're entering the, um, the zone of death there. Many have gone before you and failed. So it's, it's a tough one because in principle, that should absolutely work. The whole system is based on a failure of reverse cholesterol transport producing atherosclerosis. So why is it that upregulating it in all the ways that have been tried so far works great in mice, doesn't work in humans, who knows? And, and this is one example of, of, you know, any number of examples we could point to in which something worked really well in mice and then failed horribly in humans. I mean, yeah. the Alzheimer's field is another one. Um, and there, at least you can point to the fact that um, the major problem is that mice don't get atherosclerosis. Uh, sorry, don't get Alzheimer's. Um, in any way, shape, or form. In fact, no other species, possible with the possible exception of chimpanzees and dolphins, gets anything close to human Alzheimer's. Uh, so you have to produce these very these, these very artificial models, and the model is led by the assumption. The researcher says, "Well, I think the problem is X. Too much of this protein. 
So then they create a mouse that creates too much of that protein and then they fix the mouse. But, you know, does that mean that that's going to help with humans? Because you're testing a hypothesis there. The hypothesis, you built a mouse that conforms to your hypothesis about how the disease works. Um, and this is how we get to the point of, you know, 15 years of work on clearing amyloid beta in the brain, leading to clinical trials in which we successfully clear amyloid beta from the human brain and patients don't improve. Um, so something is wrong with the hypothesis. And, and that field is a troubled one because, because we don't have, you know, any animals that actually really legitimately have Alzheimer's disease, you're always going to have this, this step where somebody proposes something, then creates a mouse, then fixes the mouse. And, um, and, and it, this is a 10 year cycle of five years of making mice and five years of trying to get it into humans. And, um, if it doesn't work, you say, well, I wasn't, I didn't have it right that time. Uh, right. Not good. Is there a better, faster way of even doing it, though? Or, I mean, is the only solution is to go from mice to human studies? No, I think like the um, the better solution is to is to fix the damage. Um, you know, take take the SENS list of forms of damage and go fix it. For example, try to clear senescent cells in Alzheimer's patients uh, and see what happens because senescent cells create neuroinflammation. Neuroinflammation is probably important in Alzheimer's. Did that? Did that do anything? I think that's that's almost a better way forward than this business of um, this business of let's fixate on on one thing and produce highly artificial animal models, mm -hmm. uh, and then then go go see where we go from there. Yeah, is that an interesting point, right? Because for Alzheimer's, for example, it clearing out amyloid beta plaque works in animals and mice, but then for humans, you're saying it's it's not as effective, and that could also be perhaps because there are all these other processes that are happening and breaking down in your body, like senescent cells, for example. I'm just, I'm just conjecturing, yes. but it's, I'm sure there's like multiple, you said it's like, we're such complex organisms. Well, you know, the end stage of aging is really complicated. And um, it, it, the, the very, the characteristic of aging and research into late stages of aging is that it's next to impossible to determine whether A causes B or B causes A, or they're mutually interacting. You know, all you can do is try to fix one of these things and see what happens. So that's mm -hmm. exactly what they did with amyloid. And and I think it's now being conclusively proven that amyloid is just not that important in, uh, in later stage Alzheimer's disease. It might be important in the creation of the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, but I think it's probably going to take 10 years to figure out whether that's true or not, because it's a very long buildup over a very long period of time. And it may just be that that amyloid is a complete side effect, that it's just something that happens because people have um, persistent viral infections and amyloid beta is an antimicrobial peptide and or it's some other consequence of inflammation that people have uh, and or it's it's not the amyloid you see, which is outside cells, but rather that amyloid is 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 degrading the ability of the amyloid that's necessary inside cells to do its job, which was another it's very complicated and and people will keep hacking away at this but um, I, I do think that trying to address the deep causes of aging is more likely to get you somewhere in a shorter period of time because you're aiming at a at restoration of youthful homeostasis of cellular processes by getting rid of the damage mm -hmm. okay so 
discussing uh, just addressing these root causes of aging. Uh, you also mentioned tyranny of funding in the beginning. I think one of the things is that there's just less funding probably available for rejuvenation therapies because people don't know if they're going to work in the future. Uh, whereas maybe some of the, the causes for slowing aging might end up getting more funding, uh, but probably should be the other way around. What do you think is, is there a narrative uh, that you think could solve the problem? What is like a potential solution to getting more funding for rejuvenation? Well, I think the um, history, the history of this is a weird, is, is pretty weird. Uh, it's very human, but definitely weird. So in the 1970s, um, a bunch of people became convinced that we could do something meaningful about aging sometime soon. And this being the 1970s, they were very focused on hormones and supplements. Um, and they were completely wrong about what could be done uh, and how and in what time frame. Um, but they did successfully found an entire industry, um, which goes to show that business success is, is in no way conditional on actually meeting your goals. Um, so we have the anti-aging industry, you know, spawned in the um, in the 1970s, selling you know potions and and hope and and whatever. Uh, and the more effective people at selling were obviously the ones who believed their own their own hype. Uh, and the scientific community looked at this and said, "Oh God," and and just kept it all at arm's length. And so you have a sort of 20 year dynamic in which scientists became ever more unwilling to say anything about intervening in the aging process or even working towards that direction or doing anything other than sort of gently examining what happened in old people. Um, it's, it's wasted decades uh, until the 90s when people were showing, starting to show that um, that single gene mutations in short-lived species can produce quite startling changes in the aging process um, and the duration of life. And that work gave rise to most of what's going on at present. Um, but that's all slowing aging. It's calorie restriction related research. Um, so the fight of the early 2000s was convincing the world that we could actually do something about aging and that it was worth funding. And that was a bootstrapping approach of persuasion and getting some data and like, you know, getting somewhere. And then Senalytics were the first real game changing item to come out of that. Um, and as soon as that started to happen, then, you know, the, the landslide began. And now the convincing is done. People understand that we can do something. About, the people that matter understand that we can do something about aging. The rest of the world still has to catch up. But mm -hmm. everybody who's involved in funding and, um, and, and important decisions understands that we can do, potentially do something about aging now. The fight now is, is to make sure that the funding and the work goes towards things that can, in principle, produce large gains, which is, you know, we want to be working on methods of rejuvenation. Uh, not methods of building a better form of, of exercise. Um, but, you know, I'd say a good 80% of the industry or more is basically working on upregulation of stress responses, things that can't change the shape of the human life, even in principle. Um, very trivial drugs that may do just a little bit of good. Um, and anything like mTOR inhibitors, uh, heat shock protein manipulation, all the rest of this stuff that's going to make you have more autophagy in your cells. 
it's it's you know it's not worth the time and money being put into it it really isn't it's not going to change it's not going to move the needle you're not going to live that much longer because of it we need better better and more than that and that's the current fight we need we need you know the analytics industry to be repeated for all the other aspects of the um of the sens pipeline of of ways to address the root causes of aging because analytics are really impressive in mice I mean, really impressive compared to everything else. You can't reverse cardiac hypertrophy through any other methodology. You can't reverse um, kidney fibrosis. You can't, like, you know, make these mice appear radically younger um, at old age by by any of these other any of these other methods. So we need more of that. If Senalytics managed that, then the other Sens items should be, you know, equally interesting. Mm-hmm. No, I I absolutely agree with you. Uh, what is a good way to fight that fight? Um, well, you know, if we knew how to make advocacy work, um, I'd write a book and I'd be famous for that. <laughs> uh, it's a hard problem. I mean, you have to, everybody knows there's a tipping point. Um, yeah. But how do you reach the tipping point of getting 10% of the world to agree with your proposition? And that's that's really tough. Um, and I don't know. The, the you keep you just go out there you write you talk to people you try to bootstrap enough funding to get your um to to pr- to show examples that prove your proposition um and it's just a never ending fight mm-hmm. i think one thing you mentioned is that you know just making it although it probably just takes a few uh, just a small uh, portion of the population to fund and uh, most of the people who matter say may have already been convinced but um, I think still making it something which is more of a popular ordeal such that larger amounts of people get behind it. Because uh, I think, as you said, people want to don- donate to popular causes. Um, hopefully that, that helps too. Yeah, so the, the, there's, there's a sort of, um, there's, there's a, a wave approach where you need a certain amount of the public to be behind your position and show they're behind your position by donating to you because the very conservative high net worth individuals and other organizations that control large amounts of funding they don't do um they don't do things unless the path has been blazed already there unless you have social proof as it were you know tens of thousands of people trumpeting your cause and donating to your foundation or whatever you're not going to see high net worth people starting to support that. Um, so it's always a case of you need the you need the grassroots in order to legitimize um, the organizations that will actually provide the vast amount of funding to provide that funding. There's a power law distribution mm-hmm. of funding for research and investment, um, but unless you have you know the lower part of that 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 graph, unless you have the people who are donating $10 here and $10 there, unless you have them in large numbers, you're not going to find um, billionaires coming in to say, this is really interesting, because these people are all very, very, very conservative. Um, right. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. And I mean, it makes so much rational sense to me, especially when you laid out that, you know, aging is something that costs trillions to the society and so much suffering, I mean, more suffering than probably the worst sort of suffering in a third world country. Uh, but there is, I, I guess there's this disconnect between um, the broader public and the aging community and, and looking at it this way, that aging is actually an important problem to solve. 
And I, I almost wonder if like we're doing a bad job in explaining this, if we can probably come up with a better explanation or narrative to uh, help people understand why this is an important problem to solve and donate to and invest money in. Right. And what is that narrative? That's, that's the question. And how yeah. somebody will come up with something to succeed. And the more people we have trying things, the more likely it is that someone will come up with something that works really well. But ultimately, you know, if you look at all causes, um, even the seemingly fast ones took a lot of time. I mean, AIDS advocacy was an uphill battle for a long time until the world decided that, oh, yeah, actually, maybe we should be doing something about this. Um, and the man in the street understands that, yeah, we donate to AIDS research because it's the right thing to do. And the same thing was true of cancer research. It took like 20 or 30 years to get to the point of, of people collecting for cancer research in the street. Um, and understanding that, yeah, we should we should fund cancer research. Um, so I think it's we still have a way to go, maybe a decade or two before people understand that, yeah, actually this is this is this is the thing we do. We try to fight aging. Um, right now, we're still at the stage of you know the the people who control funding and the people who set research agendas are sort of you know on the uh, on the team and um, are really just arguing over how to go about it. Um, and everybody else is going to catch up at some point, but can we do that faster? And would it matter? Um, faster is always better because uh -huh. there's no amount of money that could be too much to put into this work. There's so much, the cost is so enormous and the amount of work to be done is so huge that, the, you know, we could, we could, we could multiply the research community by a factor of 10, I think. And we'd still that still probably wouldn't be enough to make the sort of progress we'd we'd like. So clearly there's there's a lot of work to do. How do you make it faster? I wish I I wish I knew. Yeah. I'm I'm hopeful. I, I think there's progress being made. Um I wanna end with three quick questions. Um if hopefully someone has been convinced to invest or donate this money in this in this field, where are some places they can do so? I think like in terms of donation, you can go straight to the SENS Research Foundation or the Methuselah Foundation. And if you want to donate a larger amount, you can go to them and not just donate, but you can actually have a conversation and say, okay, what, what are the projects you're working on? What are the projects you'd like to work on? And see if you can find something that, that you know, that interests you and that you understand. Um, that's always a possibility. Uh, in terms of investment, I think the best way to go about that is, uh, is, is go to the conferences. Obviously, that's terrible advice for the last two years because we've been having a pandemic. But um, now that conferences are starting up again, uh, there's, there's a number of conferences such as um, uh, Ending Age-Related Diseases in New York. There's Longevity Therapeutics every year in SF. There's um, Undoing Aging, which is in Berlin these days. Um, and these are all, the, there's probably a couple others. That, that don't spring to mind immediately, but these are conferences with a really good mix of, um, of scientists, entrepreneurs, and investors. And if you go there and start, start talking to people, you'll you'll get a, a sense of what the informal groupings are in the invest in the angel investor communities and who's who. And uh, that's really the only way to do it because investing is it's a network thing, uh, and and it, it's it's very resistant to um, putting itself online and places where you can find it. It's all in person and who you know, um, and that's really the way to do it. Um, you have to figure out, you know, what, what's the network here, get introduced to people, uh, and then go from, go from there.
Yeah, totally agree with you. I come from an investment background. So um, second question, what are some um, longevity pro protocols you follow right now, I guess? I mean, apart from exercise, caloric restriction, are you doing analytics or anything else? Any other supplements? So I, I publish like some as a self-experimenter, I, I publish protocols every now and again at Fight Aging. Um, there's a self-experimentation section buried in there somewhere sort of the lists, the ones that um, that I've thought about or tried. So Senalytics, yes, absolutely. Um, I take those um, sort of once every once every six months or once every three months. Um, the I've done um, flagellin immunization where you because that has pretty good results on um, restoring the gut microbiome to a more mm. useful, useful level. And that's one where, you know, who knows what the outcome will be um, in terms of benefits to health, but it's something where you can really easily measure it. And sometimes that's sometimes that's more interesting and useful from a self-experimentation perspective. And there's a few others that I've, I've looked at and um, indulged. And of course, I've tried NAD plus upregulation and not seen anything tremendous coming out of that because it's a it's a small effect, but self-experimentation. How do you measure that? Well, in theory, you would look at things such as um, you go do blood work, look at your inflamm in inflammatory markers. Um, you try measure your endurance. Um, you would look at cardiovascular measures such as resting heart rate, heart rate variability, uh, pulse wave velocity, which are all very hard to measure consistently, by the way. Um, if, unless you're very old, you're unlikely to see measurable benefits from things like that plus upregulation. But people who are very old in their 70s and 80s have seen um, quite impressive um, results from things like NAD plus um, upregulation, exosome transplants, stem cell therapies. You know, there was a fellow at one of these conferences who was in his 80s and um, walking with a with a with a walking frame. But the point was that he was walking even with a walking frame and he couldn't do that before he'd gone and, and had one of these um mesenchymal stem cell therapies uh which which are actually pretty good at addressing um chronic inflammation and chronic inflammation of course is pretty a pretty sizable component of frailty if you're very old a lot of these a lot of these things that i shrug over are actually worth looking at because uh -huh. there is some evidence for them to have general benefits in your in your quality of life I see. Okay. Um, and lastly, um, is there anything else that you would like to discuss we may have missed or anything that you're seeking help on if someone watching this uh, could help? Well, I'm always interested in talking to investors. Obviously, my company raises funding and we're raising funding right now. So if you're an angel or a small fund, family office, come talk to us, Repair Biotechnologies. Um, Beyond that, you know, there's always something you can do if you feel that you actually do want to try to make a difference in this field. There are always uh, nonprofits looking for help. There are increasing numbers of, um, of, of people forming institutes and undertaking studies and um, helping researchers do their thing or investing in companies. You know, come, come turn up to one of the conferences if you're interested in participating and uh, see, what you, see what you find in terms of things you, you could help with or that you'd like to do. That's great. I certainly hope more people get involved. Indeed. Thank you. Well, 
Thank you so much for your time, Reason. This has been great and, and very informative. Okay, you're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode and learned from it, it would mean a lot if you could show some support and share the podcast with your friends and family. I'd love to spread the science behind aging and longevity to as many people as possible, such that we can all benefit from it and live healthier lives. Additionally, if you enjoy learning about science back health optimization, you can check out my newsletter, livelongerworld.substack.com and my YouTube, which is Live Longer World. You can also support my work by donating on Patreon. I'd like to keep bringing high quality information to you and your support certainly helps. Lastly, if you wish to follow me on social media, I am on Twitter at LiveLongerWorld. I also have an Instagram at LongevityFuture where I often post graphics distilling concepts in longevity science or talking about longevity lifestyle hacks. And that's it for now. Stay in good health and catch you next time. Thank you.